everyone. Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm one of your hosts, Nell Shamrell Harrington, uh, coming to you from still snowy Seattle. And with me from very snowy Bend is my co-host, Scott. Scott, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing good. I'm Scott Nixon and uh, mostly focused on AWS these days and uh, snowboarding as much as possible in the winter. Our local mountain got 73 inches in the last seven days, so that's been fun. Awesome. And joining us today is our special guest, uh, Nikhil. Nikhil, how are you today? Good. Uh, I'm also from Seattle. It's also snowy, but unlike Scott, I don't enjoy it that much, but it's okay. You have to live through it. <laughs> All right. And just joining us is our other host, uh, Chuck. Chuck, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm running around like a crazy person. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> ah, no worries. Today's podcast is sponsored by UpCloud. Is your website running slow? Supercharge your hosting performance by deploying on the world's fastest cloud infrastructure. UpCloud offers superior cloud servers and advanced scalability, instant backup snapshots, and easy to use control panel. Fully featured API and a ton of integration options and managing partners. Pricing starts at only $5 a month with enough performance options to host any website or app, all backed by 24 seven live in-house support. You can get started today with a free trial using promo code devchattv at upcloud.com slash signup. They'll give you a $25 credit to get you going. Remember, upcloud.com slash sign up with promo code devchattv. Awesome. Well, Nikhil, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I actually work at Google, Google Cloud Platform. My area of specialization is serverless. So I work with a lot of open source and closed source solutions or serverless. Uh, I don't know how many people are familiar with, but Cloud Run, Cloud Run, Anthos. And we have kind of, you know, Google being a birthplace of Kubernetes, we have all sorts of platforms built on top of Kubernetes. So my particular area is Knative, uh, which is serverless. Now I work with a bunch of startups and Microsoft and all sorts of bigs and small companies. So I worked a lot in the area of distributed systems, microservices and so on, which is quite, quite, you know, a buzzword these days, just about everywhere. So yeah, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of roughly my background, a very brief history of me. Great. Well, it's great to meet you and thank you for uh, coming on the show. So we were chatting a little bit prior to starting the recording and you mentioned you've done a lot of work around using micro when to use microservices and when to use monoliths. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, you know, for anyone who's just beginning, you know, just a brief overview yeah. of what micro or microservices are versus monoliths and when you might want to use one versus the other. Right. So first of all, let me start from little before you talk about a web service, right? A very simple service, it accepts a request, like it's typical two-tier, three-tier, there's some kind of database, does something and it's back, right? That's a web service. Now, micros, so there are two ways of implementing this web service. You have everything in one service, right? Or what you can do is you can distribute this functionality into smaller bits that were kind of independent to each other. Uh, the idea of microservices is, uh, is not really new. We would know it as service-oriented architecture. You know, there were various incarnations of microservices before the term microservices sets in. Now, typically what happens is like every service when it starts is a microservice by definition because it's small, right? And as the service grows and grows and grows, the size bigs. And once the code base is very big, it becomes very difficult to manage that service. Now, why would it be difficult? Because if you have a large code base, right? 
and you want to make a change, you have to recompile the whole service, you have to test it. It takes a lot of time. Now imagine in a company of 1,000, 10,000 developers and you're building this one particular service. Every person makes every bit of a change and remaining 9,999 people are waiting for that service to be deployed and make sure everything's okay before they can test, right? So the fundamental problem with microservice is microservices, they don't quite scale out. So micro, monoliths, sorry, monoliths don't quite scale out, right? So monoliths, they're easy to build, easy to develop, test and everything. But as the code base becomes large, the development becomes slow, more time. And the biggest problem with monoliths is interdependency that I've talked about, right? One person is waiting for another. So, so the idea of microservice in its, is very simple and says rather than having this one big chunk, what we are going to do is we are going to have these small pieces that are going to interpret through a common interface, right? So now what happens is imagine instead of this 10,000, you have 100 teams working on 100 services. So now you're not blocked on 10,000 people, right? You just worry about your service and the remaining people who are consuming your service, they're not concerned about how the service is built as they just, they're just concerned about the interface, right? So we set and say, well, instead of having this functionality in one place, we, we spread it in, let's say, some N number of parts. And, and typically for most organizations, it's a couple of thousands that we are talking about. Right? Jet had 1,000. I think Uber has 7,000. When I talk to them, they might probably have more now. And you agree on this interface. And then each, each of the service, they kind of operate independently. And then they intercommunicate like any other web service. Now, they may not be exposed to the public, right? So typically, you would have, if you have 7,000 services, Maybe a few hundred of them is what the public consumes and remaining whatever, 7,000 minus few hundred is something internal. So that's the idea of microservice. And there is no really a definition of what is a micro and what is a macro. I mean, in the sense that, is there a size constraint that says if the service is bigger than this, it's called monolith. If it's smaller than that, it's called microservice. So it's kind of a kind of like a gray area. The whole concept is philosophically, rather than having all your functionality in a centralized way, you basically have something in a distributed way. So that's what essentially a microservice would be. Now, what are the advantages of microservices? Why would somebody want to do microservice? Well, we talked about monolith and we talked about all the drawbacks of monolith, right? Big code base, harder to change and so on. With microservice, now that you have reduced the size, as long as you keep the interface independent and constant, you can do whatever you want. You don't really have to be blocked by other people. So it's it's small, it's easy to change, it's easy to test, and so on. What it basically does is it keeps those teams independent of each other, right? So now you don't really have to be... So it it's increases basically the velocity of innovation or faster, faster innovation time to market. That's the core idea. There are several other benefits of microservices when you think about it. Very recently, actually at Google, I'm kind of, uh, I can't talk much, but I'm, I'm talking, uh, working with some kind of migration project, right? Now with, with a single service, when you have single service, you know, you have to migrate, you have to, it's all or nothing thing because you're migrating the whole service. You, you're converting one big system to another big system. Whereas with microservice, since you have this functionality distributed in, let's say, 10,000, 10,000, whatever numbers, right? You can migrate them part by part. You can use a mix of technology. You can have, not that there is any need, but you can have Java with one service, C++ running another service. You know, you could just fine tune it whichever way you want. So there are several advantages of microservice. Obviously, there are several disadvantages of microservice also. You know, it's more messy. If something goes wrong, 
You know, it's like something goes wrong, you don't know what's happening. I mean, you do have logs and so on, but with monolithic, everything is in one place. So you just look at that one place, whereas a microservice, something fails that triggers something else, which triggers something else, and you can have a cascade of failures. And what you see is not really the root cause of the problem, right? So there's a problem with tracing of microservice. So there's also a problem that if you don't have a lot of automation in place, if you just have one service, you can just have one or two commands and deploy that service. But imagine you have 7,000 services being used by- That is a lot. That is a lot, right? So you need a lot of automation to handle that. So there are prerequisites for why you would use microservice, which is where you need to have like DevOps, CI, CD, and all those things. So microservice basically comes from um, that kind of background, right? And this is actually a funny thing, but, and it's it's not particularly about microservice. It's an interesting fact. Uh, when you look at microservice, it, the idea by itself is not new. In fact, in when you look at object-oriented programming, you know, back in 1980, you were, we were using C and then we came up with C++. What is C++? How, how is it different from C? The whole idea of object-oriented programming was that in C, you have all this data and you have these types and it's all exposed. Everything is kind of global. And what C++ does is an encapsulation. So you have this class, right? A program, basically, especially a procedural program, is basically a state. When you look at your memory, it's a state. And an object in C++ or Java is basically you have some internal state and you manipulate it through an interface, what you call as a public interface. That's what object-oriented programming is. A microservice is basically the same concept taken to the web service where you have an internal database of a service which is not accessible and the service has an interface. And whatever happens in that interface all you're concerned about is the interface. Whatever happens inside that interface is not your business. So teams are kind of independent. And the funny fact is that this whole concept came from biology. So one of the pioneers of object-oriented programming, Alan Kay, was basically a biologist, microbiologist by training. So he thought of software as a human being, right? a living orgasm. And what does a living orgasm consist of? A living organism consists of cells, biological cells. And when you look at cells, cells has the, inter, the internal state, nuclear, and so on, and it has a cell wall. And you just interact with the cell on the cell wall. So he took that concept and he applied to programming, and that became what is called object-oriented programming, that you have an interface and you have a cell. And then we took that concept in object-oriented programming, applied to web service, and today we call them microservice. So it's it's not really a new, but a reincarnation of good old ideas that have worked. I really like those analogies, the C, C++, when I come from a development background that, because I, I want your input on how you might avoid this. So I used to work on a project where we started with wanting things to be in microservices, but I think we overdid it because we found when we changed one service, we had to change at least four or five others. Oh, that's far too common problem. Right, right. How, how, how does someone avoid that problem? So... There, this comes by better design. So usually, you know, when you're fragmenting something, you don't want to fragment it. So you want to, so there are two principles that you're talking about. Actually, they come from domain-driven design and I'll talk a little bit about domain-driven design. But what you have is you have like a coherence. Everything related should be together and everything that is not related should be with an interface and so on. So what happens is, let's say, let me let me draw a conclusion with object-oriented programming, right? Imagine you're building a software, you have like a user, person, person's attribute. Now, if you 
two two fine grain classes a class for age class for this one they are too interconnected right then changing one class basically would require changing several other classes because the interfaces are so connected so you have to design in a way that related things are put together this is the principle of coherence so coherence says that everything that is related to each other should be put together and everything that is not related to each other should be kept separate what probably happened and this does happen is if you find in your system too much or if you overdo or divide your functionality too thin you run into problem that you just described so that's probably what happened and you know with every technology there are pros and cons and some of the things i find is that when every new something comes out oh microservice something buzzword people just jump in without thinking if this is the right thing or not and then they just overdo it and then they were like okay something went wrong so it's it's about design now there's a there's a whole different field called domain driven design that actually talks about and principles of domain driven designs are actually very useful in uh, designing microservices so domain driven design what domain driven design i'll just talk very briefly about domain driven design is it basically mod it's software development methodology where your your classes or your objects or whatever components are basically modeling something real real life so example you're running a you're building a software for a car so you have these components car tires seats you know all these things you model them as an object so domain driven design basically is an art and science of how you essentially do this modeling and domain driven design is used for a lot of these microservices architecture in creating what is called partition boundaries so we want to partition things in a way that the related thing like the principle of coherence that i talked about are together and obviously unrelated things are separate and domain driven design has a concept of aggregates and essentially a microservice is nothing but an aggregate of an object so what is an aggregate for example imagine that you're shopping on amazon or any kind of website right you have an order an aggregate is a collection of objects treated as one entity so an order will consist of n number of items it will consist of quantity of that item some price and so on but this is one entity right if you break this entity up you're running into the problem that you just described so you have to treat that entity as together so essentially when you use principles of domain driven design in your architecture you would observe that your system will consist of an aggregate and each aggregate basically can be modeled by a microservice you should not break an aggregate or you should not you know fine tune it too much otherwise you do run into the problem because you're breaking the principle of coherence so awesome. yeah that's essentially how you do it okay i'm kind of curious one of the things that that was in the prep document it was about event driven architecture hmm. and so i'm kind of curious where does that often kind of come in and fit in to these types of you know microservices and all these things and why why is that the most common architecture i guess you know it is quite common yes it it first reason why it is common is because it model a lot of these these physical systems that we model are basically kind of event for example if you're building a new uber every time a person orders a taxi it's an event right how you respond to an event so event driven mark architecture basically kind of models how the real world works pretty well but there's another rational behind uh, event driven architecture so let me actually go back a little bit in distributed systems we have something called cap theorem right consistency availability partition and what cap theorem says is that you have to choose two but you can't have all three so you have to make a compromise yeah and distributed systems by definition is network tolerant because it's distributed right so 
in the caps consistency availability and partitioning you need partition tolerance because distributed systems can have partial failure all right so p has to be there now you are left with consistency and availability right for most of these systems availability translates to business imagine if amazon is down one minute how many millions probably billions of dollars it loses right so now you have availability and you have partitioning what you can partially compromise is consistency and what event driven architecture basically is is it's it works around this problem by building a system which is network partition tolerant which is highly available right but but basically instead of consistent it is eventually consistent what is an eventual consistent system an eventual consistent system is so let's understand what consistency is right imagine that you're placing an order and the order is recorded in some database the database in the west coast in the east coast right obviously the data is going to be backed up it has to be consistent i mean the database have to be identical if one goes down the other can take over right now imagine if you order something on you're sitting in california you place an order it goes in the west coast database it has to at some point get replicated to east coast right ideally that part should be zero so the data is consistent but like we talked we can't have network partition availability and consistency at the same time so what eventual consistency says is eventual consistent systems are systems that work in such a way that given a little bit of time and little bit of time could be few milliseconds right it doesn't have to be it can be very short given a few little bit of time system will eventually be consistent so it's not immediately going to be consistent because theoretically that's not possible but given a little bit of time system would be consistent now how do you build an eventually consistent system that's what event driven architecture lets you do so what event driven architecture does is you have these microservices right you have these distributed functionality in various kinds of service and each service would send an event something happened some some change happened in the system what should i do so it sends an event and as you consume those events you update your state so so how would this work in this particular example in this particular example what works is you place an order and event is generated that event is generated on the west coast it goes to the west coast database it writes and then west coast database generates a second event for the east coast database east coast database receives that event and it's oh okay an event has happened scott has put an order let me update my database on the east coast also So you see this events flow in the system, and what this event does is, as services receive that event, they they update their internal database with those events. So you have a mechanism where these services they all are operating, they are all highly available, they are all network repartition, and as events flow, they will eventually obtain consistency. They may not obtain it immediately because there's a network latency, but that's that's going to be typically very low. So that's the reason why event-driven architecture is very popular. it lets you build highly available distributed systems with eventual consistency yeah one of the explanations or examples i heard somebody saying you you kept talking about databases is that you could essentially have like a snapshot from like yesterday and then you could restore that snapshot to say some test or yeah. back into production and then you can you literally use all the events that have happened since you took that snapshot until the present time to rebuild the state and all the data in the database and it's like yeah. just because it's 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 almost like a it, it what it what it's what makes me think of the way database transaction logs work in kind of relational databases but it's 
different, right? In the sense that like, you know, you're not, you don't need a relational database to do this. So what you're talking about, so let me put it this way. Event-driven architecture has a, has an architectural pattern called event sourcing. So what you're talking about is event sourcing, which is actually very popular in event-driven architecture. So event-driven architecture does not really have that need, but it's the most common way of implementing using event sourcing. So what is event sourcing, right? Gremlin is a chaos engineering service built by engineers from companies like Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Dropbox. To learn more about chaos engineering, join the Slack community over at gremlin.com slash Slack. With thousands of active members, it's a great place to network and find resources to improve your organization's resilience. Now let's, let me step back. Imagine you have a microservice system. You have like thousand, ten thousand services running on each one of those databases. We talked about events being generated and as events are being generated, right? The state has been updated. If it was a monolith, you have one database in that service, one, one single entity, which could have several logical partitions and so on. So your state is in one place, right? Now in event-driven architecture, you have a distributed state and you have all of these events. So how you build these, build these systems is as you have events, you essentially, what you do is rather than storing the state of the system, you store the sequence of events, right? And you store that sequence of events and you replay that events to build the state of the system. I'll give you an example so it gets more clear on what it is. But again, I'll very, uh, so you, you have that. Now, the problem with that system is every time you have, you have an event and you queue up and you build the state of the system, it takes a lot of time. So as an optimization, what you do is you build snapshots of it. Now, let me give an example of what it means in real life. And I'm not going to give a tech example. I'm going to give a very common example. Event sourcing is very, very common. Your banking is an event source. What is a bank? You go to a bank, you open an account. So account is opened with $0. Then you make transactions. Transactions is a credit or debit of certain dollars, right? That's an event. Every time you do a transaction, an event happens. So it's a plus X. For simplicity, let's say you deposit money or require money. So it's a plus X or a minus X, whatever. What is your bank balance? Your bank balance is sum of all the delta Xs you have done since you opened up your account. If I add them up, that's your bank balance. So your state of the system, which is your bank balance, is basically a set of summation of all the events that have happened in the account. This is called event sourcing. Right. So rather than storing the just the balance, what bank does is bank operates a logbook. It stores each event. So at any time you want to know your balance, what the bank has to do is bank has to sum up all of these events and give you the total. Now, obviously, as an optimization, if you're checking your account every 10 minutes and your account is like 10 years old, the bank is not going to replay all the events. So it does some optimization and says, well, every night, every midnight, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put the partial balance. I'm just going to put the balance you have till midnight. So if you access your bank account at eight o'clock, rather than replaying your events from 10 years, it will say, I know that midnight, this was what the balance was, right? And now at eight o'clock, I'll just summation all the events that happened between midnight to eight. This is your total balance, right? Now, why is event source event sourcing used. You don't have to, but why is it used? The advantage of event sourcing is that it enables you building new scenarios that you have not previously thought of. And it also lets you combine and recombine these events. For example, same example, you're using credit card. You make series of transactions, everything is great. 
except you notice you had a fraud transaction three days ago. So you go to the bank and you say, well, this transaction is fraud. So bank says, fine, no problem. We're going to replay. We're going to go back three days. We're going to remove that one transaction that was fraud. And then we're going to replay all other transactions that were genuine. And this is your new balance. So given the fact that bank has stored all these events, it can combine and recombine these events in new ways, which it was not possible had it just stored the bank balance and not the events. So that is one huge, huge advantage of event sourcing, that it allows you to do that. Tomorrow, if you decide to build another scenario, well, I want to know something like, you know, how much money I spend on food and so on. Even though the system is designed this way, you can build additional service that can scan through all the events and then tell you, oh, I looked at all your transaction history and see this much you spend on food. So this is the amount you spend on food. So what event sourcing does is it allows you to combine and recombine these events. Your events are anyway generated rather than, okay, and it allows you to build these new scenarios on top of existing because any system, you don't know how that system is going to be used two years, three years down the line. So you have to be open to change. Maybe maybe somebody would think of a new scenario, right? Event sourcing allows you to do all that. And the snapshotting example that I just gave, like take the balance at midnight, is essentially an optimization on top of event sourcing to prevent the lag. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you for that. That was a great explanation. <clears throat> uh, so the you talked about having these multiple databases and every every kind of service maybe having its own database and stuff like that. Can you kind of explain some of the benefits of doing that? Yeah. So essentially, going back to the advantage of microservices, we talked about microservices and the very reason why we use microservice is that enables teams to be independent, right? Now, let's say that you want to store additional data, that you want to store some more column, you have to change the schema of the database. If your database is shared across all the services, if you change a schema, it impacts all the services, right? So that's the thing you don't want to do. Because the whole purpose of moving to microservices is to innovate faster, and you have just slowed down. So the whole concept is, and again, going back to the object-oriented world, right? Why are we making private objects private? Why don't we make everything public? What's the drawback? The drawback is unintended side effects is what you want to prevent. So take a bad example to microservice. We have provided you with an interface, and we can do anything we want inside. We don't care. We can change the schema of the database. We can have two or three databases. We can just, you know, change any way. We can replicate it logically. I don't want the person who consumes my service to be worried about what all these things are. He should just be worried about the interface. So that's the whole rationale. Every service has its own private database, which it will not expose to other people. The only thing it exposes is interface. And interface relatively will stay constant. I mean, it can still change, but it's a rare occurrence. Interfa interface would relatively stay constant. I, and I can do whatever I want inside. I don't have to worry about what people who are consuming my service have to think about. If I share my database, or if I, if I share my database, I can't do that. It slows me down. And if I have one big database, then it's a horrible pattern you absolutely want to avoid. Because Sorry? A question I have when I'm thinking about one database per service, I, I'm trying to think of how I would do queries across those multiple data, data, uh, data in multiple services. Uh, do, you, do you have advice on that? Yeah, excellent, excellent question and a very common question. So, so let, me, let me go a 
little back. This is one of the drawbacks of microservice. It's actually problems with distributed data. There are two problems. How do we keep data consistent and how do we query scattered data, right? These are the two problems with distributed data. The short answer is to keep data consistent. We talked about event-driven architecture and so on. Uh, there's another architectural pattern called sagas that does it, but let's go back to the query. The pattern we use for querying is called CQRS or it's command query responsibility segregation, right? And that's a very common pattern. In fact, if you use event sourcing, you actually would use that pattern. So, but before I go into that, let me uh, dig a little bit back and let me explain what is the problem with traditional read and write. Well, traditional read and write, obviously your data is distributed across. So I can't have one query doing that. I could do something like two-phase commits and so on, but it's very chatty. It has its own. So how I do it is I build a separate system for read and separate system for write, right? And what read does is read system is, and that's what the CQRS is about. It's here is that there's a command that changes the state of the system, but does not re 